we continue our series on the five solas of the Reformation. This is actually the first sola. Last week we covered an introduction of what the religious atmosphere was in medieval Europe or Europe in the 16th century. Just for those who don't know very much about the way we number centuries, the 16th century is the 1500s. Does that make sense? Because in the year one, you can't have the... We, we don't count like computer scientists. Computer scientists would call it the zeroth century, as in the first century starts at zero. But in English and in most languages of the world, we start counting with one first. So the year one AD, right after Jesus was born, uh, that's, that's a slight joke, <clears throat> that, that would be the first century. Does that make sense? So here we're talking about the time frame of the 1500s. And this morning we're going to be talking about sola gratia, or another way to pronounce it is sola gratia, but I'm not a Latin native speaker, and so you'll have to just pardon my improper pronunciation. But we're covering this morning the nature of salvation. Each of these doctrines uh, all relate to the nature of salvation. And they not by relating to the nature of salvation, they also necessarily are foundational to and are formed by our views of God. If we view a harsh God who needs to be appeased, then we're going to create uh, systems of religion which allow us to feel as if we're appeasing him uh, or, or staying his wrath or putting off his wrath. If we have views of the nature of God that he doesn't care about sin, then we'll live completely in just what the scriptures call licentiousness, which is just, you know, immorality and greed and just everything that takes over our souls in, in living a loose life. And the, the, the way to come to a good nature of salvation and a good understanding of the nature of salvation is to revisit our view of God. And so if you remember last week, we, we covered some extra-biblical doctrines that were prevalent at the time, and we said that these were doctrines that had crept into the church and these, these things are not very supportable, if supportable at all, by Scripture. There's one or two verses which, if you extrapolated, you could come up with a concept of, in Corinthians, it says that if, you, you know, if the man doesn't build on the foundation of Christ, as long as he's got saving faith, he'll be saved, but as it were through fire. They take that phrase, as it were through fire, and extrapolate it with other ideas to come up with this doctrine of purgatory. That is, after you after you die and and you've made penance for your sin, you're still guilty. And so, because you're still guilty, you have to be purged. And that purging takes place in a place called purgatory. And so, in that, in that place, you're, you're, you're facing torment for sins that are supposedly forgiven, but they're still on your account. So, I don't know how that quite works, but but this is a doctrine that's clearly not in Scripture. It's, it's not a biblically defensible doctrine. Neither are the sale of indulgences, which are basically pieces of paper, which on the paper it says forgiven, and then you put your name down, and then one of the ministers puts his name down, and that is supposedly something that God honors. And it's actually the case that those have no effect at all, which the man that we're going to meet today had much to say about them. We're not going to be talking much about indulgences. We're actually going to be talking about the nature of salvation based on our view of the nature of God. 
And so here we've got, a, we've got a theological framework in which the way that you're saved is you have faith in God and you have to do good works. So this is salvation, what, what we normally call by, is by salvation by works. That's the phrase that you might use to come up with um, just a clear and concise way to communicate what you're talking about. Salvation by works versus salvation by faith. And we're going to be talking about the nature of God, and we're not going to cover salvation by faith alone this morning. We're going to do that next week. We're actually going to be covering salvation by grace alone because the grace aspect of our salvation comes from our opinion of the nature of God. And so if you remember, we're in the 1500s, and then there's this little boy that's born named Martin Luther. And he was born in 1483 to a set of German parents. He was a he was in the peasant class, the working class. His father was a a miner and a woodcutter, and he would probably he probably would have done carpentry and things like that. Pretty good heritage if you're going to be a you know biblical teacher of the gospel. And so this man, this this man Martin Luther was born in 1483, and he had a very rough upbringing. As soon as his parents. Uh, decided he was old enough, they, they decided that he should be brought up in Christian virtue. And their opinion of Christian virtue was severe beating. In, in his journals, he said he was often beaten to the point of blood, as in phys- physical abuse. And he was beaten with some scriptures in mind that in Proverbs it says, you know, to not spare the rod or, and, or you, you hate your son. And so with those scriptures in mind, his parents took them a little too far, and this developed in Martin a, a view of the nature of God, that God is a harsh God, and he's a judgmental God. Martin seriously feared God. He had a lot of problems with, with viewing God as um, harsh and wrathful, and yet, in my opinion, I don't think they were, it was such a bad view of God. We're going to look at why that is this morning. The problem was that Martin Luther was growing up in his family, and they were just teaching him simple morality. Don't do this, don't do that, you should do that, you should do this on Sundays, etc. And he was taught a a set of rules, but Martin knew the darkness in his heart enough to know that he wasn't capable of fulfilling those rules from the heart. He realized, based on the own evidences of his condemning conscience, that sin that was in his heart was there in a way that was totally pervasive. And so Martin Luther sees this religious framework and the instruction of his parents, and he has no way to escape it, as do we all have no way to escape it. I hope you're beginning to like Dr. C. Matthew McMahon because we're going to hear from him more throughout this series because he has some very good quotes concerning Martin's early life. uh, Dr. C. Matthew McMahon writes, At school, Martin met with flogging as at home, but but he also met with learning. He was taught the Catechism, the Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, hymns, and a Latin grammar. However, these did not help him to find the loving Christ, but seared the brand of a God of judgment upon his mind and his heart. Since John Luther desired Martin to become a scholar, after his basic schooling, he sent him to the Franciscan school at Magdeburg. He had to beg for his food and sat timidly before his master teachers each day for his instruction. He was only 14 years old. Mark, how old's Morgan? Five. So in 10 years, 
you send them off to boarding school and without food, money, or support. Think about that. Who's the youngest? How, how old is Kennedy? Is he here today? He's 14. 14. So imagine Kennedy going and being sent to a boarding school and his parents send him with no money and the school doesn't have a cafeteria program. There's no meal assistance program for the poor there. He's just in this school and he's being taught the, the Ten Commandments, he's being taught Latin grammar, and he has to beg for food. And his parent, you know, in that, in that time, it, even in our country up until, I think, what, 60 years ago, it was very, very common for people to be disciplined physically in school, which, you know, for a while wasn't a bad deal. But Martin, this, this put in Martin a, it solidified the fear of God that already existed. And while this was condemning to Martin, I think it's very beneficial in some way. If you think you, sidebar, if you think you had a bad upbringing, just check yourself for a minute. Because Martin Luther had a bad upbringing. If you were physically beaten like he was, then that, there's reason for you to have some issues at work in your heart. But the thing that'll keep you there is self-pity. And Martin Luther eventually had to break with his self-pity and his view of the nature of God as a God of judgment only. God is a God of judgment, but not only. Another quote from Dr. C. Matthew McMahon concerning his life after he had spent some time in school and was going back to meet his parents. It says, he says, he visited his home in Mansfeld, which is very close to Mansfield, but upon his return, he was overcome by a violent thunder and lightning storm that nearly took his life, or so he thought. With the bolt of lightning crashing to the ground, he threw himself to his knees, believing God was coming to claim his life, and decided to enter into the monastic order, knowing full well that he was not right with God and could not stand on the day of judgment before him. Martin Luther feared God, and the reaction that Martin had to this event, where he thought God was acting in a providential way, to come and claim his life, in the middle of the lightning strike, he basically offers up this plea bargain, if, you know, I'll do anything if you just spare my life, don't send me to hell. And so he, what, what is his natural reaction? Oftentimes in our life, our most natural reaction reveals something about our, our view of the nature of God. When calamity strikes or when things don't go our way, what we revert to often can be for us and the people around us an indication of what we internally believe. And Martin reverted to his belief that God is appeased by works, and so Martin did the thing that was sensible to him. He rejected worldly things and went after religious things, entering into a monastic order. What's a monastic order? A monastic order is a building attached, usually attached to a church in which people, males or, or females in, in the convents, but in a, in a monastery, it's males. Males live together and they read the scriptures and they do chores and they make food and they, and they build things to sell in order to pay for the monastery and things like that. And they just simply pray and worship and that's their whole life. They just, a lot of good beer is made. It's, it's a wonderful time, but that that's really the only thing that happens in a in a monastery is you you make beer you sell beer you read the word that that's really all there is to life for for a monk and so the the idea is that by seeking a religious life martin was hoping to appease god and pay for the penalty of his sin but he knew that 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 wasn't going to be enough and even when 
even when he went into the monastery, he was convinced that he was still sinning in his heart and in his in his actions. And so all of his interactions with the brothers be, in the monastery became extremely condemning to himself. And they, because of his, you know, soft uh, conscience, as it were, would would not like to fellowship with him because he thought everything was sin. He learned the original languages of the scriptures during his time in the monastery, and he began to study some of the early church fathers, some of their writings. He would spend, because he was in, in the Franciscan order, the Franciscans, they, they take vows of poverty, and so he also would beg for his food, not just in his early life, but also during his time in the monastery. And so Martin had a very low self-esteem, I'm sure. He would read the word, do chores, and he would be subjected to the teaching of the brothers in the monastery. And he, his conscience was extremely sensitive in that if there was any jesting during a mealtime or, or anything at all that was slight, could be slightly interpreted as sin, he would think that it was sin and he would either withdraw from the company of his brothers or he would find his own heart condemning himself and then he would leave them not, not to be uh, stained by their sin, but to not stain them with his. And so he would constantly leave people and... We can see through all of these things in, in Luther's life, his view of God was one that is extremely accurate. God is holy, and God is extremely angry against sin. God is extremely powerful and has the ability to punish all those who do sin. God is full of wrath. These are true things about God as revealed by Scripture. God is a condemning God. He is... if. If there is not a way to come back to God, the sin that has separated us from God initially will separate us from God eternally. And so there is a payment that needs to be made. And and in a sense, God does have to be appeased, but he isn't appeased by works, as Martin thought. You see, the problem with this point of view of God is it's not the whole view of God, and it doesn't understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. But something that we do in the American church is we quickly move away from explaining what sin is and we offer the remedy before we understand that there's a problem. So what I want to do this morning in the most loving way, I want to show us that we all have a problem before we get to see who Christ is. We have to be convinced that we actually have sin or else we will treat the work of Christ as nothing. Because if I'm just a good person who needs my life put in order and Jesus can put my life in order, then he just becomes a tool or a means to me having peace in my lifetime. He doesn't become for me the saving grace, the, the sacrificial payment which accomplishes my redemption to a holy God before whom I can by myself not stand at all. And so Martin was extremely convinced that he had not met the law. And this morning, I want to help us all understand that none of us have met the law. Wrath is an old English word defined in the dictionary as deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation is righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. This is the kind of wrath that our God is full of. 
and without understanding the severity of our sin, the work of Christ is nothing. And so Martin had this problem. He understood very well his, the, the depth of depravity in his own heart, and he, he had this question, how can a sin-filled heart come to God at all? Psalm 51, verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David is saying that even from the moment of my conception, I was, I was fashioned and made in sin. I was sinning from the beginning of my existence. Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul confirms this, saying, describing the nature before someone comes to saving faith. He says, All of us lived among them, that is, the unbelieving, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's a scary word, phrase rather, objects of wrath. That we were, before Christ, we were objects of wrath. That the wrath of God remained on us. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring what is pure from impure? No one. Job here is, is in, this, in this dialogue with himself and his friends, and he's in this state, and he sees the depth of depravity of man, and he, he realizes that an impure source, that is internal sinful nature, cannot bring forth pure righteousness before God. There's, there's already been a complete staining Job fifteen fourteen. what is man that he could be pure or one born of woman that he could be righteous? He's saying that not only can a person who is impure not bring something pure, but we're all not pure. Psalm 58, 3, even from the birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. And then the... Uh, The pinnacle verse here, Psalm 14, 3. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, before you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you have to see in a clear way the nature of our sin. We have to understand that none of us kept the law at all. And by not keeping the law, we face a penalty. We're all under a curse. And this isn't some kind of Wicca curse. This isn't some kind of bad fortune cookie. This is a curse from the Almighty God. By breaking any one of the commandments, we have broken the entire law. And therefore, we have only the expectation of judgment. God has statutes which he has placed in the earth not only for the law for the Jews, but also the conscience of the Gentiles. We know and see through creation, Romans 1 argues, we see the divine things, the, the, uh, the, indivis- or the plainly seen attributes of God in the things of creation, and yet we reject them and we suppress the truth, as in we see that there's a truth about God, and in our sin, and in our, in our unrighteousness, we suppress it, as in we ignore it, we put it away, we go look at something else, we ignore it, and we dismiss those feelings, and we, we, we put them down, and we try to avoid them. And so we see that there's this holy God. Before we see who, who he is, we also know that we ourselves have committed grievous sins. Deuteronomy 
27, 26, Moses is commanded to tell all the people the law, and then they're all to say some things back and forth. And it, the, the people to, of God together were supposed to say at once, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. The law is not just something that is internal, but it's also external. The law was supposed to be fulfilled from the heart and in the actions. And therefore, we are under a curse and we are awaiting the wrath of God because we all know that we have not kept the law. But the problem is with Martin Luther's view of God is that his view of God is not the whole view of God. Even since the earliest time of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, it was promised that there would be a seed from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. And so God's wrath and God's grace are not contradictory, but rather Jesus on the cross displayed God's grace and absorbed God's wrath for us who believe. Galatians 3.13, probably the most precious verse of the New Testament, at least my most, one of my most favorite verses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus Christ, the uncreated eternal God, fully God, fully man, having full joy and delight and pleasure with the Father from all eternity past and continuing on into eternity present and future, that uncreated one, that holy one of Israel, that God came and became a man and suffered under God's wrath in our place. And where we were supposed to face eternal unending torment, he faced a temporary punishment, but complete separation from the Father and completely absorbed the wrath of the Father for those who would put their trust in Jesus. And in so doing, this work of the cross, Jesus revealed the nature of the Father. See, the Father created out of good pleasure. And the enemy came in and said a lie to Adam and Eve, and they believed the lie, and in them, sin entered, through them, sin entered into the world. But the Father is a God of redemption, and so God immediately began to execute his already predetermined plan to bring us back to him. And so, in so doing, Jesus became the fullness of the display of the nature of the Father. He said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, then show us, you know, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Philip says, or Jesus responds to Philip saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything that Jesus did, he said, concerning the miracles, the teachings, how he carried himself every moment of his life, concerning how he lived, he said, I only do what I see my Father doing. And so what did he do on the cross? He did the corresponding work that he saw the Father doing in creation that is bringing it about through redemption. And so this view of Jesus is a, is a God who's not, not only a God of wrath, but there is mercy with the Lord.
And so the cross displayed the disposition in God towards mercy. That is, God wanted to extend mercy, but because of his holiness, he, he does not, based on who he is, ever suspend one of his attributes to exalt another one. God's love and his desire for his creation to be redeemed never trumps his holiness or his wrath. And in fact, only, only his holiness in the scriptures is ever repeated three times in a row. In the epistles of John, it does say multiple times that God is love, but it never says God is love, love, love. It does say that God is holy, holy, holy. And so the holiness of God is a way by which we understand that there is a unity in God which can't just be done away with. He can't just put a, uh, give you a pass. And so Jesus absorbed the wrath for us. Now with this idea that God also has grace and is not just a God of wrath, Luther began to have this revelation of grace that you don't have to buy indulgences or make pilgrimages to holy sites to appease this God because Jesus has already done this. It's actually God's delight to save those who would put their trust in the work of Christ and not in the work of, of their, their own righteousness or their own self-righteousness. John 3.38, Jesus' teaching concerning his work, what he was doing, he that is a person who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he, does, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what does this mean? If you come to a view of Jesus, whereas you can say with faith that he is my payment and trust him and forsake your sins, that person, that person is, the wrath of God is removed from, from their account. Basically, you can see, if you could imagine a stick figure and here the wrath of God is hovering over you like a cloud. And when you see the light of Christ, you look upon him and you turn with faith to him, and the wrath of God is removed from your account. And so with that in mind, Martin has this wonderful, beautiful revelation that God is a God of grace. And this is our principal text this morning, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Paul writing to the Ephesians, after describing their nature of sin, describes the nature of their conversion. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You don't have to earn salvation. You can't earn salvation. You, there, are, there is no number of things which you can do to earn it. All of your righteousness is filthy rags in, in the eyes of God. And so the only way that we're saved is by being recreated in Christ Jesus. I want to step through this passage just really quickly, verse by verse. For by grace you have been saved. The word grace, if you were here a few months ago, we were I was doing a teaching in which I looked at the nature of the word Messiah or anointed one, that is Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not Jesus' last name. It's another description for the person of Jesus. It's not, you know, on his, on his license, it doesn't say first name Jesus and last name Christ. It's, that's not what it, it's, Christ is a term, it's a title. Um, I, I used the joke a few weeks ago that Jesus is kind of like in the Matrix when you see Neo, he's the one Right, that the idea that there's this one who will save mankind, that 
that's a common thing that comes up in the literature of, of the world. Well, Jesus was the one who was promised. He was the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And that word anointed one is the word uh, uh, charisma or uh, uh, charisma. Uh, the, the idea being that the, the gifting or the, the charisma is the person of Jesus, as in he was the one who was anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to make the, the payment. And so that nature, as we looked upon it, Jesus is the one in whom we see grace upon grace, that, that he is the one who is grace incarnate. And that word grace we looked at in the Greek was made up of another smaller word. And that, that, that word charis or grace or, or gifting is a smaller, the smaller word that it's composed of is car, C-H-A-R, which is joy. And so, as we begin to see this nature of a gracious God, we, we need to not hide behind the religious word of grace, because that's not a very common word in our native tongue anymore. We, we have to understand that part of grace is joy, that God is a God of joy. He's not just a God of wrath. He delights in his creation, and he wants it, he wants it back. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What is not of yourselves? The faith is not of yourselves. You've been saved by grace. Grace is how you've been saved. Through faith is the faith is the vehicle of your salvation. And what is not of yourselves? The faith is not of yourselves. If you come to a saving faith in God, in, that is in the work of Jesus Christ, that faith has been given to you, and that is a gift from the Father. As in, if you ever come to see Jesus for who he truly is, as the one and the only one who can make a payment on your, on your behalf, that ability to see, that ability to see is given by God. Before you're blind, and once you see Jesus at, for who he is, that ability to see him is a gift, and that's the gift of faith. This faith, verse 9 says, is not a result of works, but also your salvations not therefore your salvations not a result of works so that no one may boast how does it, how does this relate to us practically this allows us to forever break agreement with saying i was seeking for god and found him because according to the scriptures we've looked at today we were actually all running away from god and trying to satisfy the fears and or anxieties in our hearts and our souls that knew that there was a problem. And so in our sin, we looked to everything else. And finally, we came to realize, probably through a sermon or through reading the scriptures or a friend sharing, maybe even a sermon such as this, that Jesus is coming after you and that you need to stop running and turn to faith in him so that no one may boast. We cannot boast before we're saved when we're presently first saved or after many years of walking because it's clear that we were all you know fulfilling the indulgences of or the the desires of our of our hearts and our our minds that those desires that carried us off into deeper wickedness verse 10 it says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works now some some will object that sola gratia or sola gratia by grace alone we see Christ only by him revealing it to us and we're only saved by grace it's it's his work it's not our work he's the reason for our salvation 
and it's not a result of our own efforts. And some will say, well, if we're only saved by God's work, then we don't have to do anything. And that's not true. We'll cover that more next week. But the reason we aren't saved by our works is that before we're saved, we're not capable of doing anything good. Our sin is so depraved, it's so deep, that before we come to repentance and trust upon Jesus, that 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 new birth, that new creation that the scriptures talk about, before that happens, everything that we would do would be in sin. It's, it's desire to, to come to salvation. Even the desire to escape eternal punishment is a selfish, sinful desire because that is the result of not worshiping God as God. And that new birth which happens allows us to see God for who he is and to worship him as such. So, verse 10, I just want to explicitly say we are created to do good works. What are good works? Good works are works of charity, reading the scriptures, Bible study, prayer, worship, repenting, stopping sin. We are created in Christ to do those things. It says, for we are his workmanship. That is, he put us together. It's like Legos. He, he put the Legos together, and then those, that thing that he made us in Christ, we're made in Christ, we have a function. And that function which we are supposed to do results in good works. But it's extremely important that we understand which comes first. Because if we continue to walk in our walk with the Lord as I've got to continually get myself cleaned up, and we don't see that before we could even come to God, we, we were redeemed by him, if we, if we constantly are trying to um, earn our own purity, even after we come to a saving faith, and we don't realize that Christ made sufficient payment for previous, current, and future sins, that we will revert back to a functional understanding or a functional living of trying to be our own righteousness. That we'll continue to read our Bible with the purpose of making God happy with us. And we'll continue to reject the glory of the gospel and, and not understand that it is fully finished. And that by seeing it's finished, all of that seeing is done by the grace of God. I want to clearly say that you do have to repent from your sin, that you do have to forsake it. Jesus said when, when he brought the, his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. The, the purpose of faith is so that you would be enabled in, in effectual repentance. And you do need to repent, but you don't repent to get there. You repent because you're there. And that's a, that's a massive difference. And if you, if you revert back to, I need to repent to get there, then you haven't seen the gospel, or at least you need to come to a re-viewing uh, or another, another deeper understanding of the nature of the gospel. Next week, we're going to be looking at faith and what faith is. And hopefully these sermons are helpful for you to to begin to identify. Because even if we might agree with these things from a theological perspective, or we might say yes and amen to particular verses, sometimes our functional way of living, the way that we approach God in prayer, the way that we repent from sin, sometimes our functional faith is not compliant or it doesn't agree with what we would see in scripture and and it really matters how we live before God. And so I just want to encourage you with that that 
You've been saved. If you see Jesus for who he is, that is the grace of God on your life. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the work of the cross and sending your son to die in our place. Lord, we, we thank you that it's your mercy to open our eyes to the depth of our sin and to see that in Jesus we're new creations. God, I ask you that for those who are being hardened by the deceitfulness of their sin, that they would see the light of Jesus, that they would completely forsake it, but they wouldn't forsake it in order to be saved, that they would know that you love them and want them to just throw away that that sin which entangles them. God, we just ask that you would allow this church to be a church that preaches the gospel with power, signs and wonders, miracles that would attest to the the supremacy of Jesus, that he is deity. And God, we just ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work in our meetings and in our preaching that, that unconverted souls would be reborn at the preaching of your word and at the exposition of your scriptures and the demonstration of the gospel. Thanks, Jesus. Amen.